Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for January 2016, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Los Lobos leaped into the national spotlight in 1987 when their cover version of La Bamba became a number one hit. But what looked like an overnight sensation to the band's new fans was actually a way station in a long musical journey that began in East Los Angeles in 1973 and is still going strong today. Across four decades, the members of Los Lobos, Cesar Rosas, Conrad Lozano, David Hidalgo, Louis Perez and Steve Berlin have explored virtually the entire breadth of American vernacular music from rockabilly to primal punk rock, R&B to country and folk to Tex-Mex to Latin American to traditional Mexican music. Now, the band's unique sound has sold millions of albums and won acclaim from fans and critics alike, including three Grammy Awards. Los Lobos, Dream in Blue, the first book on this band, traces the entire arc of Los Lobos' career. Music journalist Chris Morris draws on new interviews with Los Lobos members and their principal collaborators, as well as his own reporting since the early 1980s to recount this band's incredible career. I began my interview with Chris Morris by asking him how we came to write this book about Los Lobos. Yeah, um, the University of Texas Press has a, a series of books on American music. Um, they've done books on Dwight Yoakam, who's another old musician friend of mine, and John Prine, the Flatlanders, uh, various Americana acts and you know roots music acts. And Peter Blackstock, who I've known for some time, who's not a critic of the Austin American Statesman, uh, called me and said, well, would you be interested in writing a book about Los Lobos? And it took an instant to say yes, because I've known the band for 35 years. And uh, then it took me two arduous years to complete that slim little volume. <laughs> <laughs> be careful what you wish for. A lot of work putting yeah. putting something like this together. Yeah, you're obviously yeah. great friends with the group. They played at your wedding. How cool yeah. is that? Well, at the time, and I got married in 1983, at the time, the band had you know, already made their mark in, in the L.A. music scene, but they had previously played a lot of weddings over on the east side. And my uh, bride-to-be said, well, why don't you ask them if they want to play our wedding? And so I went to an after-hours club and buttonholed them there, and they were all, well, I'll be frank, they were all loaded. <laughs> and they said, sure, man, we'll do it. <laughs> and so they drove out to Canyon Country, and they played the uh, the ceremony and the reception. They played, you know, uh, the, the ceremony acoustically, and then they set up their, their gear and played the reception right there on the porch of my sister-in-law's house. Two quick <laughs> notes. When you describe the east side, you're talking about East Los Angeles, I take it. Yes. yes. East L.A. East, east LA, L.A., right. And then B, you have a really cool wife. If she said, gosh, let's get Los Lobos to play our wedding. Are you kidding? Wow. <laughs> well... Really cool ex-wife. But. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to touch on anything sensitive there, but no, yeah, no, that's no. Uh, ancient history. Ancient history, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well t- take us into the the formation of of this group, which just goes back now, well over 
40 years. It's, it's pretty fascinating, and I, I, and I love how you kind of give us a, a grounding in the music from this area of East L.A. that was uh, that spawned Los Lobos. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating and pretty rich uh, place for music, isn't it? Well, there was a lot going on on that side of town uh, even before Los Lobos made their appearance. Um, there were a lot of pretty well-known bands, at least here in town, and some of them hit nationally, bands like Cannibal and the Headhunters, the Midnighters, and there were dozens of them over on the east side. And these were the bands that the guys in Lobos uh, heard when they were teenagers over on the east side. Some of them had fake IDs and you know, went into the clubs, and, and, and also these acts played dances over on the east side. But um, the guys in Lobos were all students at around the same time uh, at um, uh, Garfield High School in East Los Angeles. And um, uh, they, they knew each other, but, you know, they didn't really play together. I mean, uh, David Hidalgo and Louis Perez were good friends, and they had some garage bands, and they all knew each other. But it was only in uh, 1973 when Cesar Rosas met a guy named uh, uh, Frank Gonzalez that the band actually started coming together. Frank was uh, a little bit older, maybe a year or two older than, than the rest of the guys, and he was going to Pomona College in Claremont, and he had an interest in playing uh, Mexican music uh, uh, and, and uh, acoustic music, folk music. And he and Caesar started jamming together, and then one by one, uh, the other guys in the band signed on. Um, uh, they asked Louis, to, or they, they asked Dave to come, Dave Hidalgo to come in, and then Dave asked Louis, and uh, ultimately uh, Conrad Lozano, the bassist. Uh, Conrad uh, was playing uh, with Sierra, and um, uh, they asked him to uh, replace another guy. Uh, who was somewhat unreliable, who was a friend of Conrad's, and Conrad said, sure, and for a while he played in both bands. So uh, it, was, it, it came together kind of like the Magnificent Seven, one member at a time. Yeah, uh-huh, um, uh-huh. But there was a chain of associations that brought them all together, and they were all interested in playing uh, it's this, this folk music. They all found it fascinating. It was a part of their heritage that they didn't really know. Only Caesar uh, was born in Mexico. The rest of the guys were, were born in the U.S., uh, and they they didn't really have a lot of knowledge about you know their their musical heritage and this was a time when uh, uh, you know the Chicano movement was very active and it was highly politicized and exploring that culture uh, was a component of that political experience uh, although the band did not consider themselves political per se so um, it was the right band at the right time and they really acquired uh, uh, an audience in their own community. How did they get signed to a major label? This is a pretty pretty cool story, too. Well, that's a long story. Um, <laughs> uh, they, uh, they, they ultimately, after years of playing folk music, uh, they started playing electrically uh, at a happy hour gig that they had in, um, in, the Anah- in, in, in Anaheim Hills, which is right near Disneyland. And uh, they were interested in what was going on in the punk rock scene in Los Angeles, so they uh, they started playing, and, and this is a digested version of it. But they started playing uh, in in the uh, in, in the uh, West Hollywood and Hollywood clubs. Uh, they got they got to know the guys in the Blasters, Phil and Dave Alvin, and they opened a show for the Blasters at the Whiskey. 
and they were playing at that point a mix of you know rock and roll and and like Tex-Mex music and even some of the folk tunes like Volver Volver, hmm. and. I was in the audience the first night that they played at the Whiskey, wow. uh, which was only their second show in, in Los Angeles. And in I went, "What year? What year? Wow. What year are we talking about, uh, Chris?" January of 1982, and the effect on the audience was uh, incredible. I mean, people just went, "What is this?" Hmm. And it fit in really well with something that was going on in the you know kind of punk-related scene in Hollywood. A lot of the older punk rockers, the first-generation punk rockers, uh, weren't in the hardcore, and they, a lot of people gravitated toward, towards a more rootsy uh, version of, of the music that was happening. You know, the Blasters were a very big band uh, in, in, uh, in Hollywood, and they, they shared the stages with a lot of like, straight-up punk bands at that point. And so the Lobos really fit in with this whole kind of roots-punk thing that was going on and um and virtually overnight they became a, a very popular band in in la and that's what led to getting them signed to to slash records this this well imprint. that took that that took a little while little while, I mean, little while. Mm-hmm. uh it, it took it took about a year um uh people were hammering at slash which was the label that the blasters were on to uh to sign the band and you know, they, they were an unusual act. I mean, here's four Latino guys, Chicanos, uh, playing, you know, roots rock. Like, hmm? And, and so finally, after everybody in the world yelled, was yelling at Bob Biggs to sign the guys, uh, he finally saw the light of the show that they did at the Roxy, and he signed them. And, uh, and that's when the, the first EP came out, which was co-produced by T-Bone Burnett and Steve Berlin. And Steve, at that point was not a member of the band, but by the time they finished uh, making the record, Steve had become a full-time member of, uh, of Los Lobos, playing you know, saxophone at first, but then adding keyboards later on. Chris, it's fascinating to read, speaking of Steve Berlin, how he was really at loggerheads with T-Bone Burnett in the production of a couple of Los Lobos albums, and also the incredible quote about taking uh, time apart from the band to work on what he called a shitty little bullshit movie with no stars called <laughs> La Bamba. Well, they had already made for Slash um, uh, three albums, three yep. records. Uh, they made an EP and... and um, uh, will will survive and uh, how will will survive and by the light of the moon, and while they were making by the light of the moon, uh, they were asked by um, uh, uh, Lu- Luis Valdez, uh, who was directing La Bamba, to uh, to do the music for the film, and so they were running back and forth between two studios uh, over at um, Oceanway. Uh, and and recording the soundtrack at the same time they were making By the Light of the Moon. By the Light of the Moon came out first, long before the uh, movie came out, and it was not a success. Um, and then, um, uh, happily for them, uh, La Bamba became a huge sleeper uh, success, um, uh, partially because it was one of the first films that was really targeted to uh, Latino audiences. And um, uh, the, the the single just went through the roof, and the you know the album went through the roof at the same time, and they they hardly knew what hit them. They were uh, they were over in Europe touring when um, uh, when the uh, La Bamba became a, a hit, 
and they'd hear things. This was like before email, obviously, and before cell phones and before the kind of communication we have now. And they couldn't believe the way the single was just rising every week. And by the time they got back, they had a number one record. Number it was, one. It was like, yeah, it was, uh, the, the single went number one, and then the album uh, subsequently went number one. And uh, it, it took the band completely by surprise. And their next, and, um, their next career move was completely the opposite of probably what 99% of other artists would have done. Yeah, well, they realized that this kind of success could be a trap. Because, well, what did they do? They had a big hit covering uh, a song that was... Uh, Released in the late fifties, the old Richie Valens song, yeah. By, by a, yeah, by a deceased rock star, and so they said, "Well, what do we do here?" And they thought that the best way that they could um, uh, that they could reinstate who they were was by making a, a, a folk record. And they went to Lenny Warnaker, who was the very insightful and wise head of, of uh, Warner Brothers at the time, and said, "Lenny, we want to do this record." And he said, how much do you think it will cost you? And they said, $30,000. And he said, go for it. So they spent two or three days recording uh, La Pistola El Corazon uh, at a studio here in L.A., put it out, and it didn't sell well, but it won a Grammy, their second Grammy, because they had, uh, they had won a Grammy uh, earlier for um, uh, a track on their first EP. And uh, it said, this is not only... Uh, a, a hit-making band, but this is also a, uh, a group of legitimate artists. And, and uh, it, it was a success for them, uh, uh, not a financial success, but an artistic success. So they followed this album of uh, traditional songs up with, with an original album, The Neighborhood, not one of their finest, you're in agreement with me on this, mm-hmm. and looks like and the band was it, going through some difficult times, they, they put on, uh, spent a lot of money on a big stage show, spent too much money, mm-hmm. weren't making any money, it almost sounds by the way your writing goes that this group could have almost broken up at during this time period, and then in 1992, they released, well for me anyway, and for most people, it's their masterpiece, Kiko, H- how did they go from... The Neighborhood, which is not a terribly inspired album, two years later, to make one of the most in- incredible albums that's just so elect- eclectic and boundary-breaking. How did this all happen in the space of two years, Chris? Well, it was kind of uh, <clears throat> alchemical, you know, almost. They, they, uh, the Neighborhood was a catastrophe for them. I mean, it was, it's not a great record. Uh, it took them forever to do it. Uh, they were working with a guy who was an engineer who had never produced an album before, and uh, it, it it just it, it just didn't work. And and they went out on tour and they said, well, you know, we had a big hit, you know, let's be rock stars. And they were rock stars and they lost a load of money. Mm. Um, and so when they got back to town, uh, David and Louis said, well, let's figure out what we're doing here. Let's just start writing together face-to-face. And so they rented a little space over in Whittier, and they got together, and they wrote every day, and they came up with a good deal of the material that would later appear on Kiko. And they started recording demos of this stuff at a little studio down on Skid Row in downtown L.A. And it had a kind of a rough feel to it, had a different feel to it. And they took, uh, they took the material into Lenny Warnaker, and Lenny said, well why don't you work with Mitchell Froom? 
And Mitchell, who's a producer, had produced a track on The Neighborhood, probably the most interesting track, a track called Angel Dance. And um, he and his engineer, Chad Blake, had made a bunch of uh, really interesting records with Crowded House. But they were looking for something different to do. And so they applied all of these unusual techniques. Uh, Mitchell brought in a lot of unusual, weird keyboards, and, and Chad... Uh, you know, used some bizarre pedals, and they were, you know, they they recorded in all sorts of unusual ways. And they came out with this record that didn't sound like anything else that either the band had done or that anybody else in the country was doing at the time. And it, it, it it's really kind of a magical thing. I mean, uh, all the guys in the band talk about it in the book, and they, they, they didn't really know what was happening while it was happening. They just knew that they had never done anything like it before, and they liked what was happening with it. And they created a masterpiece. I mean, it, it's, it really is one of the best albums by an American rock band ever made, I think, and it's, it's a real statement. Um, and it wasn't a huge hit, but uh, the critics went berserk, and um, uh, Definitely one of the best received albums of its year, and and still a very vital record. I've I've been fortunate to get a chance to see them perform that album uh, in its entirety twice live. Uh, one time at the Grammy Museum here in Los Angeles three years ago when it celebrated its 20th anniversary, and it's spectacular. It still is, and it sounds great live. Uh, they don't they don't the songs stand by themselves. Chris, how has this band managed to stay together after all these years? I've played in a couple of rock bands, and we barely got through two or three years without, you know, being at each other's throats. And I know that there's been, it's not all been, you know, peace all the time with Los Lobos, but how do they keep going, and how do they still sound so good after some 40-plus years? What's the secret? They're just very creative people. And obviously, when you're together for 42 years, um, it's 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 a marriage, you know, and and they're comfortable playing with each other. They all do their own thing, um, you know. David and Louis uh, had um, uh, the Latin Playboys. Caesar's made a solo record. Steve produces records and plays on on other people's records. So they they keep they keep things fresh by working outside of the band context. But um, uh, they like to play. They like to play together. They're still an incredibly exciting band. I've seen them probably half a dozen times this year alone. And, and they are, they still bring it. And, um, and they're still making interesting music. Their new album, Gates of Gold, uh, is a wonderful summation of everything that they do well. You know, folk music, uh, Latin cumbias, uh, uh, roots rock, blues, uh, funk. It's all there. Um, and, uh, I, I think at this time, at this point, after this period of time, it's, it may be hard for them to conceive of even playing with other people. They're, 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 they, they, there's a reason why um, uh, they're the longest-lived American band after ZZ, uh, after ZZ Top. You know, the longest-lived American band that still has its original core membership. Um, uh, it just works. It works splendidly. And if it ain't broke, why fix it, you know? <laughs> and last question, besides Kiko, which which obviously is their masterpiece, what album can you direct listeners to that uh, they should check out by Los Lobos? What's your other favorite release from this band besides Kiko? Well, it's hard to pick just one. I, I think uh, 
uh, How It Will Survive is a great record. Um, I think the new album, Gates of Gold, is a great record. I think Colossal Head, which was the album that followed Kiko, is, uh, if anything, even more experimental and exciting than, than Kiko is. It plays really well. Um, but uh, there aren't too many turkeys in their catalog. Uh, but, but those are the ones that I think are really exceptional and, and have stood the, the, the enduring test of time. Thanks for listening to our interview with Chris Morris, author of Los Lobos, Dream in Blue. Martin Bandyk Undercovers for January 2016 has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.